If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is Conspiranormal. Okay, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. And uh, for the first time in about six months, Surfiel and I are in the same place. We're no longer doing this from a distance. We're not 130 miles away apart from each other. Yeah, yeah. So I am back in Nashville. Getting vaccinated and got hella yep. antibodies, so feeling feeling confident to get back together. Um, yep. And um, hopefully this will be um, the way it's it is. Adam's back in Nashville, so um, mm-hmm. it's it's back on. We're back in physical reality together. Yep, back in business. I mean, we kept this thing going all the way through the whole last year without having to. Um, well, without having to be next to each other. So that, that says one thing for the modern world of technology. And I feel like we've really, uh, gone pretty, pretty strong in the last year as well. So a lot of people have been, were stuck at home and they were listening to us and we hope they continue to, uh, but tonight guys, we're going to kind of go back over something we talked about a long time ago. I had this guest on sometime in like the. I think the fifties range of the show. So this probably would have been about like 2013, but since there is a new movie that came out not that long ago about the subject that this researcher has spent a long time talking about and researching, which is Fred Hampton. And the movie is called Judas and the black Messiah. Uh, we have Craig Coney back on the show. Craig, you actually hit me up about coming on, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to have you back. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you doing it. It's good to, to be back. Um, I hit you up because I was just inundated with all of the positive reviews of the film, and I'm thinking, okay, what's what's the best way to just <laughs> to counter this really quickly? Yeah. Because I know you just have a wide audience. What, what are, you, are you guys up to a million? listeners yet uh i don't think we're quite there yet i wish but we're not we're not quite uh, to a million we're not joe rogan level hopefully this show will will help yes sir absolutely i think we're around about thirty thousand a month okay something like that so not not too bad not, um, n- nothing nothing to sneeze at absolutely there's room for growth as they say absolutely so, so. um but so we are going to talk about Fred Hampton. Uh, we're going to talk yeah, about the and movie and we're going to talk about how it, I guess, differs from really what happened. So right. where do we want to start with this, Craig? Well, that's an excellent question. And it's, it's what I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks 
thinking about trying to just, you know, keep things in order. Um, but I have to say off the bat that I completely understand basically the Hollywood formula, uh, that, that makers, um, well, anybody who's, who's, who produces historical dramas, um, they take liberties and I'm well aware of this, um, you know, from making composite characters and events to chronological displacements for the sake of time. And, and I, I guess just understanding, um, and, and certainly uh, like intimate dialogue that never was recorded, obviously, uh, but, but can only be construed what two people alone said to each other. You know what I mean? So I, I get all of this. I get, I get these, all of these being part of the Hollywood formula to make uh, the film as, as appealing as possible to the widest po- possible audience. I get that. But the fact that I'm a little bit more invested in this particular subject and the fact that <clears throat> um, Shaka King and the director Shaka King and Will Burson, who wrote the screenplay, did not do sufficient enough work to build a good foundation for even the selection process for what went into the film. I think that their perspective lens that is not just looking at Fred Hampton and the Illinois Black Panther Party, but also the informant, the FBI informant, William O'Neill. The fact that, 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 that you're including that perspective along with Fred Hampton, I think is just, well, unnecessary and it's insulting. So my criticisms aren't necessarily with the historical inaccuracies, which we could talk about ad infinitum. Um, but a lot of those could be <laughs> could be argued by Shaka King that well I was doing the very things that you understand I was doing like composite characters and chronological displacements and things like that. So it's the fact that you're even showcasing William O'Neill. Now for those who don't know, and I would be surprised if you don't know because he'd be he's he's been bandied about as a very important and central figure in the history of the Illinois Black Panther Party as the 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 best known, if not the one of the only known, FBI informants in the Chicago, the Chicago headquarters of the Illinois Black Panther Party, um, and he has been attributed to doing a lot of things to disrupt the party and its growth. And um, yes, of course, he gave his contacting agent Roy Mitchell the floor plans to Fred Hampton's apartment which then led to the ability of it being raided. Um, and yes, you know, so, so yes, he did that. But beyond that, he, he really was um, an FBI informant. No better, no worse, no more successful, no less successful than the several that were, that were in, the, in, in the Chicago headquarters. Um, and people don't realize that, that he was not the only informant. But because he was outed in 1973 and because he gave the, gave the elements of the floor plan of Fred Hampton's apartment, well, people connect the dots and they even attribute drugging Fred Hampton the night that, that the raid happened. 
so that it would render Hampton unable to even wake up so that he would be an easy target. So, so even though there's no evidence of that, people attribute that to him because it's just easier to do that and to make him, well, the Judas, right? And of course, the title itself is, 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 a, is a shortcut to quote-unquote creativity, making, making a William O'Neill the Judas and Fred Hampton the Black Messiah. The Black Messiah, the Messiah, the word Messiah actually comes from the FBI directive from headquarters um, increasing their program called COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so in, in its initiating letter of, of August 1967, it says it, it talked about what its um, what the goals were, the long range goals. And in the second goal, it says to prevent the rise of a of a messiah who could unify, electrify the black militant national movement. Right. Well, but this was <clears throat> this was in March of 1968. And at this point, Fred Hampton was still in the West Suburban Youth Council, which was the youth branch of the NAACP in Maywood. He wasn't part of the Black Panther Party because it didn't exist in Illinois yet. So it, again, it's, it's being creative with you know, the relationship between William O'Neill, the eventual relationship between William O'Neill and Fred Hampton. Um, but it, it obviously was not referring to Hampton. And just as a point, the very first goal on this COINTELPRO document, I think is even more important than the one that's touted as, as proof that the FBI went in and killed Fred Hampton. And that is prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups. In unity, there is strength, a truism that is no less valid for all its So Fred Hampton, who even in the movie, they portray somewhat his um, co-founding of the um, Co- Rainbow Coalition, along with Bob Lee. Right. Um, that's what they were targeting. They were targeting those kinds of coalitions. The fact that Fred Hampton was somebody who could go in and was so um, compelling and so charming and so um, effective as far as laying out um, philosophies and directions and goals that he could unify those militant black nationalist groups. Um, the, the state's attorney uh, of Cook County, Edward Hanrahan, called them gangs. But of course, yeah. you know, Fred never referred to them as gangs. So <clears throat> um, the, another criticism that I have of the film is the fact that it's fictionalized and sensationalized events in an attempt to make them more dramatic when the truth itself, what really happened was even more dramatic. And the best example I can give you of that um, is when in the scene in the movie, when Fred Hampton was, was released on bond from Menard penitentiary. Okay. So during the summer of 69, right at the time that the, that the Illinois black Panthers were really, um, hitting their stride and, and peak membership, peak appearances, um, influence in the, in the city of Chicago, certainly the downtown area. Fred is convicted of assault and robbery 
of $71 worth of ice cream from an ice cream vendor. Right, yeah, I remember that. That I remember I remember that depicted in the movie, yeah. Right, right. That, the great, the great right. ice cream. Um, this was in July of 1968. The trial finally got around to happening in April of 1969. He was convicted, all-white jury, of course, um, and he was sentenced on May 26th. So he goes into prison at the end of May and is released in August, okay? When he's released, he is picked up by a caravan of Black Panther Party members. In the movie, he's picked up by one car, Deborah Johnson, his girlfriend, pregnant girlfriend at, at the time, William O'Neill, and Bob Rush, who was the deputy minister of defense. Then they drive to the headquarters. And what, what the movie shows is that Fred just walks through the front door into this office space at their headquarters, which, of course, didn't exist. The second floor is where the offices were. The first floor was just a stairwell and a little reception area to be buzzed in and then go up the stairs to the offices on the second floor. Um, but he walks in into the, into the office space and a, a handful of people are there. Right. And they're they're He is surprised because they had quote unquote rebuilt the black Panther party headquarters after a fire had been set during a police shootout in July. Okay. But what really happened was when Fred was driven from being picked up from prison, the jail actually, and taken to headquarters, there were two rows of 25 black Panther party members out on the sidewalk. When he stepped out of the car, they all snapped to attention and then gave the black power uh, sign, the raised fist over their head. And Fred walked past them and into headquarters. He then surveyed the damage that had been done during that, during that shootout with police. And then came back down and addressed all of the members that were still in military-style attention out on the street. Now, that, was, that was, would have been so much more powerful on film oh, than yeah, just absolutely. Fred walking in to a few people Hey, Jim, Jim, glad you're back. You know, that kind of thing. Could have been a budget constraint, maybe. I don't know. Well, <clears throat> but again, you, you ask these questions about the excuses that you make for not doing this. Is that really the best you can do to pay homage to somebody like Fred Hampton? I mean, that's what Shaka King and all of the actors that were involved when they do interviews, they said that we we really liked this project and got into it because we think that Fred Hampton needs to be known about. It's his legacy that's at stake here, right? right? So every shortcut that you make or whatever excuses you make for those shortcuts, that's not how you pay homage to somebody like Hampton and the sacrifice that he made. The sacrifice, of course, being his life. Right. You're saying it's pretty much doing a disservice to him, especially, um, you know, when people like you are, are spending so much time to really parse out what exactly happened and what his importance was. Absolutely. And instead of reading, well, I, I, I'm not even, I can't even suss out what, it, what in fact they read because the attributions at the end of the movie, the credits, give the research that's all it says. Research by Dr. Raymond Winbush, 
who was the former professor of one of the producers in what mm. appears to be a favor. Hey, right. I do this professor in college and now I'm doing this, I'm producing this movie. So we'll have him be our historical consultant, even though Dr. Winbush has his degrees in clinical psychology. He is not, he is not a, <clears throat> a scholar of either Fred Hampton, the Black Panther Party, or of Chicago in general, or, or, or of the political, um, uh, the, the political and, and cultural movements in Chicago at the time. Well, Craig, can you kind of outline for people uh, what your journey into researching Fred Hampton has been? Because you've really been at the forefront of trying to get the information uh, with the uh, Freedom of Information Act from the FBI. Absolutely. Um, at, at first, you know, I've almost 30 years of research. And at first I was wow. just a kid in a candy store. I had, I had seen the murder of Fred Hampton, which is a documentary that was done by Michael Gray that came out in 1971. That's only two years later. Well, that's when it was released. See, yeah. and, and here's where the explanation really needs to come into play about the murder of Fred Hampton, which is now available all over the place on, on YouTube is that uh, Michael Gray and his, um, and his crew were in Chicago. They had already done a documentary called The American Revolution Number 2 um, ab- about what the goings-on in Chicago, and the Panthers were part of it because the, part, the Panthers were just getting started. So Michael Gray, being so taken in by Fred Hampton, decided to stay in Chicago and wanted to do a documentary about them, about Fred and, and the Illinois Black Panther Party. So the first half of the movie is, is footage of Fred and of other Panthers doing what, what they did, you know, Fred speaking, Fred meeting with people, um, you know, out, outdoor rallies during the, you know, free Bobby, you know, uh, stop the trial and free Bobby seal who was on trial yeah. for, okay. um, for the previous summer's, um, democratic national convention, the Chicago seven. Exactly. Chicago eight and then Chicago he was eight. removed and then it became the Chicago seven. Right. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But in the middle of the filming of that, Fred was killed. And so the pan- the lawyers for the Panthers asked Michael Gray to come into the apartment just hours after the, the shooting, the, the raid took place to film as an evidentiary um, film, the condition of the apartment, and then, of course, the press conferences that Edward Hanrahan um, gave and the, the claims of the actual Raiders, because the Raiders called it a shootout when, in fact, it was a shoot-in. So anyway, so that's, that's, what, that's why the murder of Fred Hampton looks like it looks. The first half is footage of Fred, and then the other half it was meant to be an evidentiary video to show the complicity of the Chicago authorities to cover up the quote unquote investigation of, of the raid. So I, so I started with that and I went to the people's law office, um, which was um, a group of lawyers who handled the civil trial that was brought on behalf of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, another Panther who was killed during the raid and the survivors who were in the apartment. Nine people were in the apartment that morning of December 4th, 1969. Um, anyway, they brought a lawsuit against the city of Chicago. It turned out to be a 13-year ordeal that only netted them a little under $2 million 
for the nine survivors and their families. <clears throat> so I was, I was able to get a hold of their records. And through that, because they, through the process of the civil trial, were able to get FBI documents, I thought, okay, well, does anybody have Fred Hampton's FBI file? And it turns out no one had. No one had requested Fred Hampton's file. And even to this day, the main investigative file of the Chicago Black Panther Party has still not been asked for or released. I mean, the FBI isn't going to voluntarily release these materials. We, as a, as, as a society, have to ask for these things, have to get them to release it. So I asked for Fred Hampton's file. And I was under the impression that Fred Hampton's file was only 12 volumes because that's what the people's law office said they got, right? It turns out that it's, it's more like 40 volumes and not 4,000 pages, but 40,000 pages. So in 1997, I uh, submitted a FOIA request asking for his file and started getting the documents in 2001, stopped getting documents in 2003 for some unknown reason. And since that time, I have been trying to get the FBI to comply with my original request. They are still about, oh, I think they gave me a little less than half of what I had requested. So in the interim, I have been, of course, studying what I have gotten. And it's very dense because it's not just like reading a trial transcript. These are intelligence documents, which are then related to other intelligence documents. And you've got to go after those. And it's trying to read through the redactions or the blackouts, you know, um, and connecting dots and things like that. So it's, it's been, it's been a battle with the FBI and it's been a battle just to, just to um, process the documents they already have, which is in excess of 20,000 documents. So, so I've spent a lot of time with, with Fred and the Illinois Black Panther Party. And my, my, of course, if, if I had my druthers, it would be to do a documentary. But I understand why a motion picture is, is more, you know, uh, desirable. Um, but even, even barring that, even barring a motion picture, you can still do it and do it justice. You can still do it right. You can still do the research to at least know what to what to include and what not to include and the story of William O'Neill is definitely not something you need to include and like I said does uh, does a real disservice to the man who everyone says led to Fred Hampton's death directly I mean if he really did drug Fred Hampton so that he could be murdered much more easily why on earth would you want his perspective are you trying to humanize him I thought you were trying to humanize Fred. I have heard those exact words on commentary about this, that they were trying to humanize him. You mean William O'Neill? Yes. Okay. Well, let's, 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 let's talk about, or let's, let's see how he can be humanized. William O'Neill was interviewed once, only once, um, on tape, on, uh, you know, um, filmed interview for black side, um, for Blackside's documentary called Eyes on the Prize, and this was done in like 1990. Right. Yeah, that's a very famous documentary. 
I, I hope it's famous. I hope people know it. I hope people have seen it and it's, yeah. and it's still available, like I said, on, on, uh, on YouTube. So he was interviewed and the transcripts have always been available, but just recently they, uh, they have published or, or made available the entire unedited film interview of William O'Neill. So I was watching that the other night and reading through his, his the transcript. Here's, here's what he said uh, as far as this is the guy we want to humanize. Um, I don't think I don't think of myself as a hero for what I've done, but at the same time, I don't feel ashamed. Do I feel like I betrayed someone? Absolutely not. I had no allegiance to the Panthers. Um, and then he goes on to say, at this point, I questioned the whole purpose of the Black Panther Party. It got a lot of people hurt uh, and did very little else. So this is the guy you want to humanize who basically wanted all of his life to be a G man, an FBI agent yeah. and not his chance to do that because he was a petty criminal when he was, a, when he was a teenager. And so he was blackmailed by Roy Mitchell to infiltrate the black Panther party. And he got in and he's being paid and he's feeling important and he's feeling significant but he had, but he had no allegiance to the Panthers, and he had absolutely no contrition about what he did. Yeah, the movie depicts it totally different. Like, the, like he actually had some kind of love for Fred Hampton and some kind of conflict. Yeah, I mean, he did commit suicide, but who knows if that was because of that? Even you know, the movie makes it seem like that might have been the reason, but it could not have been. Except, yeah, except for the fact that yes. He did commit suicide on the night that the first episode of Eyes on the Prize was broadcast. But the episode that he was in, episode seven, didn't air until a month and a half later. So they made it seem like, oh, <laughs> he watched it on TV and said, fuck this, I'm going to kill myself. Remorse. Yeah, no, because he didn't see himself. He saw the first episode of, mm -hmm. of the... the this is a documentary of the civil rights movement. So you, you're talking about a long span. Yeah. So it probably would have started at some point in like the forties or something, you know, talking about exactly. what we're talking about. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's two of those documentaries, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's actually two parts of it. Yeah. I think there's an eyes on the prize too, as well. Yes. That will be. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where I'm I've, I've seen neither one, but, so sh William O'Neill showing any kind of contrition was, and you will see if, if you watch his black side interview, he does say, yeah, I felt betrayed. Okay. He felt betrayed. But what he's referring to is he thought that he could have been in that apartment when the raid went down. And so his concern, his betrayal was that he, he didn't know, you know, he could have been in the apartment and he himself could have either been shot or killed. That's what he felt betrayed about. It was no concern for everyone else, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was about his self-preservation. He could have been killed. And in his, in his interview, he says, yeah, I didn't even talk to Mitchell for several days after that. You want to bet? The very next day, December 5th, they met so that he could get, he could be, get paid. So this idea, even on film, that, that O'Neill, you know, felt some contrition and 
was going to punish Roy by not, you know, by not meeting with him with a lie. Right. Well, it just seems like they wanted to kind of use those uh, tropes of an undercover movie, you know, and those usually have some kind of uh, moral conflict in the person who's going deep cover. But I think the main problem is that this story has never been told really, especially for, for the masses, you know, so it's, it seems a little different if, if it's something that, that, that is already out there that doesn't need to be cleared up that people don't need to understand the importance of. Right. But, but it's not even an effort to clear it up again. A, a lot of the things that were portrayed in the film, uh, attributed to William O'Neill or even that they didn't put in the film that could have been attributed to William O'Neill wasn't there. So even that, that foundation, even if, if, like you said, it, it is kind of an important story to tell. And yes, it, yeah, it can yeah. be told along with the story of the Illinois Black Panther Party. But well, then again, yeah, yeah. Don't- that's what I'm saying is that the the actual story hasn't been told and needs to be. So it's more important to get things right. Absolutely, and 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 I feel that it would have been a lot more compelling had you had you shown that. Well, like like who like Jagger Hoover, the the FBI director Jagger Hoover's intent in these kind of programs like COINTELPRO, like, like infiltrating and, 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 but not just, not just black nationalist hate groups, but anybody that he deemed an enemy of the state, he wanted people to be so afraid of the FBI's presence. He wanted people to think that there was a FBI agent behind every mailbox. That was his, that was, you know, his goal. Excuse me. So wouldn't it have been just as compelling if, because we can establish that there were no less than eight informants in the Black Panther Party in Chicago, wouldn't that have been just as compelling to show how confusing it was, how suspicious it was, not just one person, but several? Because again, one of the things that isn't talked about in the movie, because that would have completely thrown their premise off, was that William O'Neill, while initially he was the chief of security and was Fred Hampton's bodyguard, he was no longer chief of security and Fred Hampton's bodyguard as of April of 69. Fred Hampton, whether whether he got reports or Fred saw William O'Neill's behavior on his own, and came to suspect William O'Neill of something. They had a central staff meeting about William O'Neill. There were about half of the people that wanted him kicked out. There were uh, the other half that said, no, he's doing a pretty good job and we need soldiers, which I get that line of uh, questioning or that, that line of reasoning. But Fred Hampton did not trust him and cut him off in April. So you remember that at the end of May, Fred's in prison now. So there, there's no need for a bodyguard for Fred anymore. And you know, things are getting very strange in the summer now that Fred's in prison. But it seems that O'Neill was part of the information cadre. Um, because there was, there was an article that appeared in the Black Panther newspaper under O'Neill's name. Then, of course, when Fred gets out of prison... There's a whole restructuring of the Illinois Black Panther Party about to take place. <clears throat> and so Fred 
gets his own chief of security, his own legal advisor, his own uh, bodyguard. And it wasn't William O'Neill. William O'Neill was working for Bobby Rush at the time. You know, because Fred could have said, look, I don't trust him, but Bobby, if you trust him, he's all yours. But I don't want him near me. And Fred came up underneath Bobby Rush, right? Thank you. That's, that's a very that's important weird. distinction. In, in the hierarchy of the Black Panther Party, the leader of the, the, the state chapters was the deputy minister of defense. Okay. Then under that is the chairman or the deputy chairman. Okay. So they were following the hierarchy of the National Black Panther Party headquarters in Oakland, California. So the two founders of the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton, he was the, de- he was the minister of defense, and Bobby Seal was the chairman. So everyone else in the state chapters had to be subservient to them. That's why they took on the deputy title, deputy minister of defense, deputy chairman. Because if you say Chairman Fred Hampton, you're saying that he took over for Bobby Seale, which, of course, he didn't. But So, uh, yes, the, the highest title in any state chapter of the Black Panther Party was the Deputy Minister of Defense, which was in Illinois, Bobby Rush. But Fred was the spokesperson. Fred was so much more at ease in press conferences and interviews and even speaking. There are clips of Bobby Rush in the murder of Fred Hampton, uh, and you can just tell that he's not really at ease with public speaking. And that's fine. You know, not everybody was. So Fred had a, Fred had a little more uh, charisma. Fred had, respect. well, not a little more. He had a lot more. This is what really needs to be uh, understood about Fred is that he was, he was mature beyond his years. Yeah, because he was only, what, 20, 19, 20? When he died? At the time of his death, he had just recently turned 21. Wow, that's amazing. And for anyone who hasn't you know, seen him speak, just go watch some YouTube clips or something, and you'll see why, why they were so afraid of him. Right, but, but I also want to, to uh, implore your listeners to also search for, well, there's one that has just been recently, um, two, two actually, uh, one in which Fred has a, has a press conference on uh, October 31st, 1969. And he's with the Reverend C.T. Vivian, who is, who is a, 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 um, just a very well-known and, and uh, very important figure in the civil rights movement. Uh, he was head of uh, CUCA, or the Coalition for United Community Action. They held a joint press conference, and this video is on YouTube. So if you see Fred in a press conference situation, and then when David Hilliard, who was the national chief of staff of the Black Panther Party, came to Chicago in support of Bobby Seale, who was on trial, he and Hampton are interviewed in what looks like a room in the federal building. Um, and you see Fred in an interview situation. So, so it's not just his fiery, um, uh, I- impressive and, and um, compelling speeches. He is also this way during meetings interviews, press conferences. He's just so at ease with, with anyone and at any time. <clears throat> so absolutely, seek, seek, them, seek them out. The only, the only problem with the, the murder of Fred Hampton that I have is, is the fact that, that um, it's, it's not contextualized. You know, you don't know when this is. You don't know 
where this is and you don't know who he's talking to. Yeah, it's it's kind of more raw footage in a way. Yeah, it is uh, that you hit it right on the head, Adam. It's yeah. raw footage. And uh, when I spoke to Michael Gray, the director, the creator of this, uh, a long time ago, um, he said he had 22 hours of footage. Wow. And I asked him, okay, so what happened to it? You know, uh, why aren't there five more documentaries uh, on Fred? And he said, I just handed them all over to Rush, Bobby Rush. And the and uh, the documentary is like an hour and a half long, I think. Yeah. Yes, but remember that half of it is evidentiary footage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's of the apartment. It's of you know the 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 rating of the apartment. Did a reconstruction on CBS. Um, you know, reconstructed the events as as they recalled it, and so that's on the murder of Fred Hampton. But again, it's not contextualized, so people don't really know what's what's going on. What are some of the uh, most interesting parts of the uh, information that you've received through your requests? And do do some of the redactions have they have you kind of been able to read between the lines? Have they spoke volumes themselves, or maybe pointed you in certain directions of what you think they may have been uh, trying to hide? Well, usually, and, and it, because it's not really sinister what what the FBI does in, in, as far as redacting certain elements uh, when the um, Freedom of Information Act was first passed in 67, they had a series of exemptions that, yes, you can have all this information, but there are certain elements that need to be exempt from disclosure. And these elements basically are um, intellectual property. (laughs) Uh, We cannot reveal our our sources, our informants, or their symbol numbers. We cannot um, impede on people's privacy rights by having their name show up in an FBI document that they might not know even exists, which is the irony of the FBI and their campaign against American citizens, um, <laughs> notably in the 1960s, is that they didn't give a shit about your civil rights when they were bugging your, your phones and your houses and opening your mail. But if we want to release these materials, well, now we have to, we have to concern ourselves with your privacy. Right. Um, so, so they weren't. It's not a sinister thing. I mean, you know, I get that people who 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 just happen to give the FBI information, their name shouldn't be right. Or if any <laughs> element could lead to the identification of somebody whose name is redacted, like either their uh, telephone or their address, their date of birth, uh, you know, vital stats, these are redacted. Now, the thing that they cannot redact, they cannot redact that information for people who are dead. So when I submitted my initial FOIA request in 1997, I sent with them a dead list. People who I knew were dead, and I proved it, so that their names couldn't be redacted. And a lot of people don't realize this when they, when they you know, uh, submit FOIA requests, that, that if you can preempt their uh, redactions, it makes it a whole lot easier to read through. But what I found to, to get to your question is, is no smoking gun. There's no smoking gun. It, it is, it is simply just the FBI doing their best to make sure that the black Panther party had as little success as possible and that they continued with, with tried and true techniques. That is, Mass arrests, 
so that you can embarrass them and so that you can deplete their donations or whatever money they make from speaking. If you arrest them on petty charges and, and nickel and dime them to death, then they can't grow, right? Or using their contacts in local media outlets, which, of course, the FBI had lots of, of contacts in media to be able to put out a certain narrative about the Black Panthers or about Fred Hampton or about their success or about um, the success of the programs that they had or things like that, that was very effective in, in um, limiting like recruitment. Because look, if, if, you, if you see an organization and you think, oh, I, I really can get behind their 10-point program and I can really get behind their community programs and I really like the people who are running it, I want to be a part of it. But if you know that being a part of it will not subject you to <laughs> FBI surveillance yeah. and, and, and possibly dangerous situations of, of raids or things like that, you might think twice about joining that organization. So, so, so the, the things in the files are kind of like that. And uh, again, that irony of what the FBI did to Fred Hampton in surveilling him every day of his life from late 1967 to the day that he died was they created a history that we would not have otherwise had because you have to remember that the black Panther party weren't concerning themselves with an archive like, Oh, we've got to keep that for posterity because we're going to put this in our library one day. You know what I mean? They're fighting for their lives every day. And a lot of the times when they were um, raided or arrested, everything was confiscated. So they didn't have a whole lot left, you know, um, and, and Chicago specifically, when I talked about the police shootout in, the, in July of 1969, the, F, the F, or not the FBI, but the, the Chicago police set fire to their third floor. Yeah. So, so the records are gone, you know. The newspapers are gone. So, you know, that kind of thing. So being able to have these documents now and have the things that they confiscated from the Black Panther Party establishes a history that we would not have otherwise had. So I don't know if you give credit to the FBI. I, 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 <laughs> I hesitate to say that, but, but that's really what it is, is this is a monument of, of historical data. And that's why it's important for people, um, people who I actually have found out about. Uh, there's, there's one blogger, I can't remember his, I can't recall his name right now. I saw it about a year and a half ago. He was requesting William O'Neill's file. And of course, I wrote to him because I wanted specifics. See, through the documents that I have, I know that William O'Neill had several files not just one. So if you write to the FBI and say, I'd like William O'Neill's file, they'll be happy to oblige you because your request is so broad, they can basically give you anything and justify it. Is that a usual technique you've encountered with them? Absolutely. Wow. That's why when wow. I made my requests back in 1997, I had done my work. I had read the book, um, <clears throat> by Marianne Butrago called Are You Now or Have You Ever Been in the FBI Files? It is the Bible for anyone <laughs> who wants to know about FBI because she identifies 
the classification numbers on files. Um, she has a, a, a glossary of FBI terms. There are examples of the different kinds of documents that the FBI created. So I had this at my disposal. Well, everybody had it at their disposal. So I knew what to ask for. I knew that I had to say, no, you look in the control file. You look in the June file. You look in the, um, the special agent in charge's safe. So I told them all the places to look for stuff so that they couldn't come back to me and say, yeah, here's what you asked for. You know what I mean? <clears throat> the reason that Fred's file is so large is because what people failed to realize, or I think what the lawyers from the people's law office failed to realize was that when Fred traveled, cause he traveled lots of different places like Wisconsin, um, Indiana, Michigan, New York, Louisiana, and even Canada a, a couple of weeks before he was killed. The FBI doesn't just say, oh, he's going on a trip. We'll see you when you get back. No, they call or instruct the field office where Fred is going to speak. And they say, Fred's going to be here at this campus or at this high school or at this, you know, you pick up the trail. So in every city where Fred was, and there is an FBI field office, there is a file on Fred Hampton. So his main file is in Chicago, because that's where he was based. Then there is a um, headquarter file in Washington, D.C., because they sent copies of certain things to headquarters for consideration or just for filing, you know, whatever, filing procedure. And then there are files all around the country on Fred Hampton. So I requested all of these. And of course, these are the ones that I still haven't gotten because, you know, the FBI long, loves, loves to frustrate requesters. So how long ago did you request them? 97. And, oh boy. Yeah. Wow. So I am still, I'm still searching for um, a civil rights attorney that will take my case on compel the FBI to ju I just want them to comply with what I originally asked. Okay. Cause, cause when I made my request, they called me and said, well, here's what we found. And I have the running list of everything they told me they found. Then they started sending me documents and then all of a sudden stopped. So I have an inventory of what they have. And like I said, more than half of what they told me originally they had, they still have not given to me including recordings, photographs, um, electronic surveillance or wiretaps, um, you know, those kind of things. And of course, all the files around the country, including Canada, which they claim doesn't exist. <laughs> Yet I do have FBI documents that prove that Fred Hampton's file from Ottawa, Canada exists. So unless you're in it for the long haul, just like Weiner did, uh, I actually, I don't know if it's Weiner or Wiener, um, who got um, John Lennon's FBI file. He, he, he had to fight 25 years just to get 700 pages of John Lennon's FBI <clears throat> that's file. That's crazy. I mean, it's like, that's, to me, it's just more than enough to show that, like, there's something being hidden. There's something, there's some resistance. Why is there that resistance? I mean, it's just, it's, that's... That's insane that it takes that long. Oh, absolutely. Well, because again, the, 
the number one cardinal sin for any FBI agent is to embarrass the bureau. Yeah. Embarrassment was like the like the number one thing that Hoover just could not stand. Because up until the 60s, they did have an impeccable record. They were known as the greatest police force in the country, right? And, and there were movies made about them, and Hoover, you know, published a couple of books, and so it was very sensationalized. Oh, G-Men, and isn't that, isn't that romantic? Yeah, the, the untouchables, and yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Then come the 60s, and they just, Hoover specifically, just went apeshit. Uh, with all of the anti-war protesters, with all of the gay rights, with all the women's rights, with all the black, you know, black liberation movement, yeah, and and the hippies and, and everything, they just he just said, okay, w- you know, follow them all, watch them all. I know this is a bit of, of a diversion, but is there any truth to like that? This was a response to the things that he like experienced back in even like the 1920s. You know, like with the anarchist bombings and the, you know, the first Red Scare and all that. No, ab- no absolutely. I, I, think, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I think that, that, that the uh, underlying principle of, of Hoover's nearly 50 years of being the head of the FBI and um, responsible for its, well, it's, you know, uh, its rise, its power, um, the 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 um, the money that it received every year from from the government. You know, he was responsible for that. I think that he was operating on a very high level of paranoia and fear, not just um, of of the the stability of the government, but of course the stability of society. So it was his job and his bureau's job to make sure that we protect the, that American way. Right. Okay. And, and any kind of, and any kind of threat to that is a threat to the American way of life. And of course the, the system of yeah. government. And the Panthers in particular were really portrayed as like a, as a socialist threat because of their ideology. And they kind of viewed them as an insurgency because the way that they uh, got sympathy by helping the community is basically seen as like a counterinsurgency operation against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think and I think the cooperation that the FBI had with local uh, law enforcement agencies, like I said, like Cook County, you know, state's attorney's office, and and just local police departments, was that idea that yes, the Panthers were doing what the municipalities were supposed to be doing. Okay, the Panthers were feeding and clothing and giving health care to impoverished people and but isn't that what cities are supposed to be doing so so these militant you know gun-toting uh scary black people were doing their job and and doing it publicly and doing it um successfully right it looks it looks real bad on the authorities you know it looks real absolutely especially uh, you consider who is running the chicago machine at that time which was mayor richard daly it's not always about politics. It's it's also about just pure embarrassment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, so so groups like the Black Panther Party and, and, and myriad other groups in Chicago that were successfully organizing and um, uh, 
shining light on on some of the criminalities and neglect and you know of of not just impoverished but also disenfranchised people that was absolutely an embarrassment um and and of course the the out the fallout from fred hampton's assassination was that it cost edward hanrahan his job not just the job he had at the time which was the cook county state's attorney but he was the hand-picked successor to mayor daly and that went right out the window and that was upon fred hampton's death so you can imagine what fred hampton would have done had he lived he probably would have just been just as obtrusive um in in edward hanrahan getting what he wanted and and even mayor mayor daly getting what he wanted so and that and that's what it comes down to the other thing is is that the portrayal in this film about fred hampton's about the raid you'll notice in the film that edward hanrahan the state's attorney's office was never mentioned but they were the ones that did the raid now yes william o'neill gave the information to Roy Mitchell, Roy Mitchell drew a diagram of Fred Hampton's apartment. They got a warrant under the guise of stolen weapons are in that apartment, which of course they weren't stolen. And then there's an FBI document that says they weren't stolen and boom, we have a search warrant. Well, who's going to conduct this raid? Well, it's going to be the, the state's attorney's office. The state's attorney's office has two different police forces i mean tactical units designed just for this kind of thing that is the special prosecution unit and the state's attorney police a combination of those two little tactical units then converged on fred hampton's apartment nine of them went into his apartment each one armed with two to three weapons each including personal weapons including personal ammunition, including a machine gun. And so they enter the front and, and the back, and they converge the shooting onto the two bedrooms where Fred Hampton, the pregnant Deborah Johnson, and then the other Black Panther Party members were. Now, in the opening of the raid in the movie, you see Mark Clark, who was the leader of the Peoria branch of the Black Panther Party, Right. He was standing in front of the door and he was shot in the chest. Except that I have his autopsy report and the bullet went through his left arm, through his chest and through his right arm, which means that he was leaning against the door at the time that he was shot through it. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, when the Raiders came in the front, they, there was uh, Brenda Harris, uh, a Black Panther Party member, was on a cot in the corner. They actually stitched her silhouette with bullets in the wall behind her, like in a cartoon, like a, like a Looney Lord. Jesus. And those bullets, of course, then went into the north bedroom and struck the three people who were in there. And then, of course, that wasn't enough. They just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. A couple of times they ceased fire um, and then people were dragged out. But once Fred Hampton was killed... And in the movie, it, it, that is what Deborah Johnson says happened. But she wasn't the only witness to cops going into Fred's bedroom and shooting him point blank in the head a couple of times. There were three people who heard that exchange happen. They then took Fred by the wrist and dragged him off the bed 
and dropped him in his doorway in the, to his bedroom. So that when the rest of the Panthers, the bloodied, wounded, beaten, scared shitless Panthers were marched through the apartment, they could see the corpses of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Now, this, of course, would have been incredibly powerful and difficult to watch on, on a film, but that just shows the animosity, the level of animosity, and just and basically um, contempt that the cops had for the Black Panther Party. Wow. So, like I said, the, what really took place was a lot more dramatic than, you know, certainly what Shocker King put on the put well, on the um, screen. Yeah. And they're, they're continuing. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Continuing relevance, I mean, the in addition to these fears of... Uh, of socialism, they challenged the, the entire model of policing the inner city. And I mean, that's how they got their start really is, is watching um, police interactions with the community and, and uh, monitoring them. Yes. And of course that was, that was taken right from a page of, of Malcolm X who said that, that we do not, we, that is at the time when he was in the nation of Islam. And then even after he split with them, he said, it is not promoting violence by defending yourself. If someone comes into your house and brutalizes you and attacks you, you have every right to defend yourself. And so they took that page, and of course, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton out in California, the, the Oakland police at that time had a horrible reputation for the brutality that they inflicted on people in 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 oakland and so they said all right enough enough we are it is legal to carry a gun as long as it is not concealed and so we are going to do that very thing we are going to pick up the gun we are not going to conceal them and we are going to follow cops around as they patrol our neighborhood and if we see cops stop someone we will get out of our car we will approach the scene from a legal distance and we will ask the officer questions or instruct the person that they just pulled over what their rights are. Because you don't really, you know, people don't really know their rights until they're, they're either abused or, or they're taken away, right? You really don't have any reason to question what are your rights until you're confronted like this. So the Black Panther Party helped people to understand what their legal rights were. And even in Chicago, um, from... The summaries, the, uh, the tap on their phone reveals is how busy every single day the headquarters of the Chicago Black Panther Party was. People asking for help, people asking for bail, people asking for advice, people asking for numbers for lawyers. I mean, the Black Panther Party, at least in Chicago, because that's really what I know, were the go-to organization, one of the go-to organizations for assistance in the community. So you're right. It wasn't just about ideology or 
uh, or even economics, even though socialism, you know, it's, it's a class war and not a, a race war. <clears throat> um, but this is more almost like fraternalism. Absolutely. Yeah. Heightening all of these contradictions, uh, economically, socially, politically, philosophically, and legally. Of course, the Black Panther Party, knowing full well that people were being incarcerated at a much higher level than other uh, swaths of society, and of course, they understanding that, that they do that just as a harassment technique to drain your resources and, of course, your enthusiasm. Well, how is that any different now? You know, we, we are still talking about carceral, uh, you know, injustice, whether bonds are too high and can't be paid. So now you're incarcerated until your trial, which might be a year and a half after your petty little charges. Um, you know, the conviction rate of blacks versus whites for the same amount of crime, you know, for the same crime, that kind of thing. Absolutely. The Black Panther Party, that was, they were shining light on that 60 years ago, you know, 50, 55 years, 55 years ago. So yeah, they were, they were, they were incredibly dangerous to the status quo. And, you know, that certainly should have been something that, or that could have been something that, that was um, portrayed in the film, but instead it was the sensationalized, we're going to have shootouts with the cops because that's all we did, which is of course not the case. Um, it's going to be tit for tat. You're going to kill one of ours. We're going to kill two of yours or that kind of thing. Right. Where if you just listen to the rhetoric, then that's enough to, you know, there's still so many misconceptions uh, about the, the time period and, and really removal, the historical context to understand why uh, people would have been interested in socialist ideas, people who had been, um, you know, institutionally, deprived of building wealth you know they're just really viewed outside of context and then later with the the end of black power and and really the uh you know influx of so many uh drugs in inner cities and what happened after that then it's like people were blamed for becoming these rugged capitalist individuals after black power you know so it's like what are people supposed to do like yeah a system that on a, on a local level might have worked but on a wide scale people just didn't get it but now, of course, we're embracing democratic socialist uh, concepts. But yeah, so what, what are people supposed to do? And, and okay, so maybe the Marxist rhetoric, uh, the, you know, the, um, the jargon that, that was slung about in a, in a lot of areas, maybe, maybe people in the community didn't understand that. But as Fred pointed out, they understood when we fed their children when we bust them to prisons, you know, to visit their loved ones because you don't, you don't have a car or a car that works. Uh, you know, we're going to provide you free medical, uh, care. That's all socialism. And you like that, don't you? You like those programs then, well, then you like socialism. So yeah. And, and we're still, we're still arguing about that today. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. of this, we're still arguing about. Today. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this 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 movie, as far as I'm concerned, really missed the mark in in getting the essence of Fred Hampton. What it what it what it portrayed him as is well, okay. We know that Daniel Daniel Kaluuya is a fabulous actor, and he did do a very good job with what little he had to to invoke 
Fred Hampton, right? To portray him. He could only be as good as the script that he's given, right? But Fred Hampton never screamed and yelled. And unfortunately, Daniel, or Shaka, I guess, didn't mind portraying Fred Hampton as a screamer or a yeller. He never did. I mean, watch, watch his speeches. Like I said, he didn't yell or scream. He, he, had, he had a natural inflection. He, his voice could carry. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was boisterous and he was loud, but he, he didn't scream, you know, uh, like, like, unfortunately, Daniel a couple of times in the movie did. Um, and then, of course, the, the underlying love story between Deborah Johnson and Fred Hampton. The, yeah, that's all cute and well, but, you know, they were on and, on and off again. And there are even still some people who claim that she was his fiance and or wife, which of course she never was. She testified to this under oath during the civil trial. Um, But I, I, you know, the, the actors of course are very good, whether it's, you know, Daniel Kluge or, you know, Lakeith Stanfield or Dominic Fishback played um, Deborah Johnson, but, the 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 entire perspective or lens and view of Fred Hampton was was way off the mark, and it's because they they really did not do their their work. Um, I spoke with Jacoby Williams, who was the author of From the Bullet to the Ballad, and you have to realize <laughs> there have only been two books with the name Fred Hampton on the on the cover of it. One is Jeffrey Haas who was one of the lawyers in the civil trial against the city of Chicago. He wrote the assassination of Fred Hampton. And then Jacoby Williams from the bullet to the ballot, which is the Illinois chapter of the black Panther party and racial coalition politics in Chicago. So there has still yet to be a dedicated volume just on Fred Hampton and his life and the arc of his political philosophy, which went from the NAACP and nonviolence and, you know, that kind of stuff to meeting Stokely Carmichael and being very influenced by Malcolm X. So it's black nationalism now and black power to then being influenced by the black Panther party and Marxism, you know, socialist Marxism and that kind of philosophy. So I, he of course was not done growing or evolving in his, in his thought processes. A lot of the things that he initiated in Chicago either were not, um, he wasn't given direct permission from the national headquarters in Oakland, California. So he was doing a lot of things on his own, but he was also um, highly respected in, in the national headquarters. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, I was getting off the point. I'm very sorry about that. Um, so Jacoby Williams, he has a book on the Illinois black Panther party and a very, a, a large chapter on Fred Hampton. Was he consulted for the movie? And he told me that, well, he had been approached, or at least he was told that his book was used as a resource. But of course, they didn't want to pay him by buying the rights to the book and basing it off of his book, right? Sure. Um, And so they did not, there aren't that many scholars out there. I mean, it's, it's basically down to John Rice, me, and Jacoby Williams. And Jacoby, unfortunately, is the only one who's written the book. I don't know why John Rice didn't didn't write, you know, like I said, a, a specific book on Fred Hampton. 
Um, and me being an independent historian and with very little resources um, to do all this work, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't have a staff. I don't have undergraduates that can do my work for me, you know, as a, as a professor, Jacoby Williams is. Um, so things are slow. And I do admit that I'm interested in the minutiae. I'm interested in the backstories of a lot of these, a lot of this stuff, but I'm not under the gun to publish something because it's part of my job as an academic, you know what I mean? You know, publish or perish. I don't, I don't have to live by that. So I can take my time. I can, you know, get things dig a little deeper, I guess is what I'm saying. So I'm sorry that I don't have a book. Uh, but one of the questions that Jacoby Williams was asked on a podcast interview that he did recently was, okay, where do young people go to find out more about Fred Hampton? And Adam, you said, unfortunately, you said you visited the Wikipedia page. Uh, avoid that at all costs. No Wikipedia. Yeah, page. because but, you know I, I, that's that's something that I do usually if I'm watching a movie or something. I will sit there and pull the pull Wikipedia up on my phone. And I was very very confused because I was trying to kind of like match what I was kind of I was kind of I was watching the the movie and I was trying to match what was kind of briefly look at Wikipedia match what was on the screen. Yeah. And like, I was trying to, well, when was he in jail? And that was the thing where I remember I asked you, I was like, was he in jail? Because I was confused because like, it doesn't even say that he was on the Wikipedia page. And you think that that would be a pretty, that would be pretty important to, to mention. Yeah, it is. And, and of course it was important enough to put in the movie, but again, they portray Fred's uh, stint incarcerated as that he was beaten, which he wasn't, that he sobbed at the news that the headquarters had had, you know, they had a shootout with the police at headquarters and that it had to be burned to the ground. Like the warden chucked the newspaper article into his, uh, into um, the hole where Fred was and said, you know, it's over. Of course, no, that's, again, it did not happen. But, you, you know, again, to try to humanize Fred. But now you've got him sobbing in, in the hole in, confi- in solitary confinement, which, again, he never was. He wasn't beaten. I, I have his prison file. I know, you know, what happened in it. But anyway, uh, so, yes, he was in prison. But <laughs> and in the movie, you have Edgar Hoover saying, oh, wait, no, he can't go back to prison because, look, Eldridge Cleaver became a, an author. Huey Newton is, is, is a, you know, um, is a hero, you know, so, Oh, we can't, we can't let Fred go back into prison. So that's why we got to kill him, which of course is, is a ridiculous premise anyway. But if you were to ask me, which you didn't, sorry, that's why I'm answering it. Um, where people should go. Like I said, uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas is, good for, of course, Fred Hampton's assassination. It is basically a memoir of a radical lawyer. So he does talk about some of the other cases that he did. It's not just about Hampton. Um, I don't even know how, how much he delved back into his own records because a lot of things that he says are um, either mis, misdated or um, uh, not referenced very well. Um, Jacoby Williams' book, absolutely, because it, again, deals with the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party uh, from the bullet to the ballot. Um, 
And what Jacoby Williams didn't do was he didn't urge his listeners, which I'm going to urge your listeners, you've got to do a little digging sometimes when you want to get to the crux of it. Okay, so it's it's not like other um, events in history or even people in history. This this is not Abraham Lincoln, where you have how many thousands of books on him or the Civil War. So sometimes if you're really interested in something and really interested in learning about it, you really have to dig. One nugget in particular, if you can find a copy, which really shouldn't be too hard to find, is a book by Dempsey Travis called The Autobiography of Black Politics. Um, Dempsey Tra- Travis uh, was, was a, a well-known, well, highly regarded citizen in Chicago, and he has a wonderful chapter on Fred Hampton. And the difference, well, what makes his book worthy of getting is that he interviewed people who were close to Fred, and so there are wonderful testimonials about the character of Fred Hampton and who he was, not just when he was in the Black Panther Party, but even when he was in the ACP. So um, he did work to, to create something that can't be had anywhere else. Um, if you, if you do want to try to find uh, John Rice's, um, the only was an article that appeared in, in not an anthology, but a collected works. Um, and I should have had it right in front of me. Here it is. It's called, okay. It's edited by uh, Janine Theo Harris and Kamosi Woodard. Uh, it's called Freedom North. He has a chapter in there. Um, and then even more rare uh, is the Bible of Fred's assassination called Search and Destroy, uh, which was, well, it's attributed to the Commission of Inquiry which was headed by Roy Wilkins, who you should know who he was, and Ramsey Clark, who was the former attorney general. So they did an investigation into Fred Hampton's assassination, and it is the go-to um, reference for Fred's assassination. But they also do some biographical work on Fred as well and his influence in Chicago. Well, and I want to point out that I want you to highlight how uh, Fred Hampton's death and assassination was part of a, a larger like assassination campaign of uh, other Panthers and how many Panthers were actually killed. And this is the reason why so much of the leadership was like going into exile. Yeah. Right. And, to, and, to, and to add to that, Craig is, you know, we've recently having watched Adam Curtis's latest documentary, uh, can't get you out of my head. And he talks about uh, Tupac Shakur's mother. This is in New York. And also it was the same kind of thing where you had these agent provocateurs. Uh, you had these, uh, these undercover agents that were, that were in really just deeply embedded into the, into the black Panther party and just how much, how just endemic this was in the black Panther movement. And also, you know, there was also the whole thing in the movie about this guy that was also, I think in the Peoria chapter, if my memory serves from the film, that was also a, uh, uh, informant. So yeah, George Sam's. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Except George Sam's was never at black man's party headquarters in Chicago. 
even though the FBI used that information that O'Neill gave them, that he was hiding out there as, as a context to raid um, Black Panther Party headquarters. Anyway, uh, but to ask, answer your question, I've, I've done quite a lot of work uh, on trying to pin down just how many Black Panther Party deaths could be attributed to battles with the authorities, whether it's, like you said, agent provocateurs uh, who were interrogating them to death, or whether the FBI, one of its tactics was to either create or to um, expand existing rifts between two competing organizations. Like in Southern California, the Black Panther Party and us. A lot of people attribute it as, as uh, uh, United Slaves, but that's, that's not what Ron Karenga, the, the founder of us, explained it as. But anyway, so they were at philosophical odds, and so some of the COINTELPRO tactics or methods that were used were to, to continue to stir that animosity between those two groups so that it gets to a point where they will then retaliate. You know, so the FBI would create cartoons, you know, um, embarrassing cartoons or, or, you know, insinuating that one group is, is, you know, the bitch to the other or, or whatever. Um, or they will write anonymous letters outing certain people for, you know, affairs they never had or things they never did. But of course, they were hoped that they would be believed and that it would cause them to shoot it out with each other. And that's exactly what happened in Southern California. So at least three people, three Black Panther Party members were killed because directly of, uh, through the um, methods of COINTELPRO or the tactics of COINTELPRO in that state. But as a general number, we're talking about between 1968 and 1974, we're talking about 35 Black Panther Party members who are killed either by informants, agent proctors, police, FBI. But what designates Fred Hampton's assassination as a state-sponsored assassination is the level and degree of cooperation of local, state, and federal authorities to ensure that this happened. That's the difference. And there isn't any other case, or at least not as glaring case, of a state sponsored assassination like Fred Hampton's. <clears throat> but of course the FBI would take any death of any black Panther party member as a success. And they would, they would so, uh, you know, put it, put it in, in their memorandums as successes because of what we've done because of, you know, the, the fever pitch that we have created and we have sustained you know, the sowing the distrust between these organizations of these individuals, we've done our job. They're killing each other off. We don't have to, you know. So the idea that the, that the FBI directly killed Fred Hampton, well, that's, again, not giving the whole picture. The, the real picture is, is even more dramatic, and that is the cooperation between the state's attorney's office, the FBI, and the gang intelligence unit of the Chicago Police Department. And that's just to kill him. Now, we, we haven't even talked about the cover-up of his assassination. 
<laughs> you know. So um, there have been a lot of casualties. Yeah, that's a, that's another part of it is that they made it. They didn't they say that he pulled a gun on him or something like that. That it was basically the same old story, essentially. Right. Well, according to the to the raiders, they were immediately uh, met with gunfire. So of course they say the Panthers shot first, and then they had to shoot. And the more the Panthers shot, the more they shot. You even had one raider that said that, hey, if 200 rounds were exchanged, I wouldn't be surprised. But what ballistics proved in the investigation that came after was only one bullet could be attributed to a Panther weapon, and that Panther weapon was Mark Clark's. Because, again, if you can visualize in your head Mark Clark with a shotgun in his hand, leaning his left arm, forearm, not not forearm, um, like, his arm against the door, like to try to stop somebody from coming, from coming in. Mm-hmm. He's shot through the door, shot through his left arm, his chest, and his right arm. And as he's falling to the ground, he fires one shot because he's dead. <laughs> Not because he's trying to kill whoever's on the other side of the door. That was the only bullet that could be a tramp, uh, attributed to a Panther weapon. Yeah. So the number of shots that the Raiders fired fluctuates, but it's, it's usually you'll, you'll see the number being anywhere between 75 and 90. By my count, there were no less than 130. <laughs> That's amazing. But, but that can't be established with any real accuracy because once Fred... Hampton and Mark Clark were killed, it should have immediately been a crime scene Mm -hmm. and it should have been preserved until the crime lab could come and process it. Then the Raiders could then issue their search warrant and take whatever they were authorized to take, which was basically weapons. But instead they ransacked the place and they got out of there really quickly because this happened at four 30 in the morning and they knew that the neighborhood would be waking up and they would know what was happening. And of course they didn't want to be in a predominantly black neighborhood and learn that Fred Hampton and Mark Clark had been killed. So they basically abandoned, abandoned his apartment and it was not officially sealed by the coroner until two weeks later. Now the black Panther party, I don't know who authorized this. It would have to have been Bobby rush. And while I understand why he did it, it was stupid. The, the, the afternoon of, of December 4th, when Fred was killed, they started doing public tours through the apartment. So they'd be led from, um, from, from Monroe Street through the apartment and then out the back. So people could basically pick up anything they wanted as a souvenir, whether it was bullets, bullet fragments, casings, anything. They could have walked off with them. So we will never really know how many shots were fired, but from the ballistic evidence that was recovered and that we can match together, that's why I'm saying it was closer to 130. And then you've got one of the Raiders saying, well, you know, if it had been 200, I wouldn't be surprised. So it is not inconceivable that up to 200 were fired, but they were all fired by the special prosecution unit not from the Black Panther. So it was not a shoot out. It was a shoot in. But despite the ballistic evidence 
the survivors of the raid, the seven people who survived the raid, were all immediately brought up on charges of murder, or, you know, attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, blah, 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 blah. Right, right, of course. Yeah. Even though they had not fired a shot. Yeah. So, but, this, you know, that, that that's just the start of it. Going after Going after radical groups, yeah, this is, yeah. Absolutely. This was the playbook at the time. But of course, no, no, no one's so more radical, of course, than the Black Panther Party, and specifically in Chicago, Fred, because of the success that he had with that particular chapter. It mm-hmm. was considered the headquarters, the Midwest headquarters of the Black Panther Party. So basically, Fred had dominion over the other state chapters. That's why he went to Detroit, why he went to New York, why he went to Louisiana, why he went, you know, um, because if things went wrong. Oakland, the headquarters, national headquarters, would send him there to work to work stuff out. So Fred was absolutely um, becoming a very important uh, member in the National Black Panther Party. And had he ever reached that that height, if he had if he had taken over for David Hilliard, who was the chief of staff, I think Fred would have been untouchable. Because you'll notice that the deaths of Panthers weren't the high profile ones. It wasn't Huey Newton. I mean, he was in prison. Uh, it wasn't Bobby seal because he himself was in and out of prison. It wasn't Eldridge Cleaver because he was in Algiers in exile. Um, but it was, it was the grassroots organizers like Fred Hampton, like Sylvester Bell, like, um, you know, uh, John Huggins and Bunchy Carter. Um, the, 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 the grassroots guys, the guys that were really, running state Black Panther Party chapters really, really well and becoming influential. The authorities wanted to nip him in the bud. Absolutely. And like I said, when Fred went to Canada and spoke on Canadian university campuses um, just a couple of weeks before he was killed, he was now taking uh, the plight of Black America internationally. Now he was also not only telling the Canadians how, how blacks were treated, but he was also listening to how Inuits or native Canadian people were being treated. Sure. So right. he met with local leaders and he was, and he was listening to, you know, um, the kind of persecution and prosecution that they were facing in Canada. <clears throat> so he was becoming a, a, this cooperative between these two countries. Uh, so his coalition didn't, you know, it wasn't just in Chicago. It extended all the way to, to Edmonton. And that was dangerous. So. Yeah. What do you think about the ideas that um, the Panthers really made enemies by having an impact on, on lowering criminal, the activities of criminal networks in their, their areas? Uh, do you think there is anything, there's anything to that, that there's maybe like a... Um, you know, both sides of the law, pretty much they became the enemies of, and that might've led to some of this uh, suppression. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, we were talking about not just community uh, um, programs uh, like clothes or food or, or, you know, legal first aid or, you know, medical aid. Um, but it was also taking otherwise disenfranchised, um, 
very young and pissed off people for good reason, for whatever, you know, the condition of their communities um, and giving them a purpose, a purpose other than turf wars, which, which it, uh, specifically in Chicago had, had, had been a, a concern for a lot of people was, you know, your, your only concern is turf. Well, how about the condition of the houses that you live in and, you know, the lack of education that you've gotten. Well, we in the Black Panther Party here, are, here's our 10 point program. Here's how we're educating ourselves. Here's how we're trying to empower ourselves to get out of this condition. But if you just sit there and kill each other over, over territory, then you're not going to get anywhere. In fact, you're going to alienate the community. You're going to further impoverish the community. So <clears throat> it was absolutely um, something that the Black Panther Party concentrated on. Um, trying to politicize otherwise um, aimless, um, well, what they call gangs. And I'm, I'm reticent to call them gangs. Well, it's it's kind of unfortunate, too, because, it's, you know, when the Black Panther Party was, like, basically destroyed, that there was certain they certain of them later kind of, like, engaged in criminal activities. Yeah, unfortunately. So, yeah. yeah. The, the Black Panther Party was, was very communal. Um, that is, they, they all basically shared in, in the donations uh, and money. They would, that's why, why do you think nine people were staying at Fred Hampton's apartment? Because, look, I have an apartment. I'm going to let you stay here if you need to because you're in it from out of town or, you know, you're tired because, you know, uh, Black Panther Party headquarters in Chicago was just, you know, a block over from Fred Hampton's apartment. So we have a long night of work. Come crash at my crib. Right. Um, and I've got food, so help yourself. You know, th that kind of thing. It was very communal. Right. They shared cars and they shared apartments and, you know, funds and things like that. So when that was cut off, absolutely. What else are you going to do? You know, yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, I'm going to go back yeah. to school. I haven't saved any money because I didn't make any money because I didn't have to. Well, and, and on the West Coast in particular, um, you know, a lot of the people from the original Crip and Blood sets claim that it is actually traceable that ex-Panthers are the ones who started those gangs. Hmm. Well, and uh, I, I can't speak to that, but I guess it, it wouldn't surprise me. And that, but but of course not all of them. I mean, you've you've certainly yeah, got yeah. people like you know uh, Bobby Rush, who became you know a, a congressman from Illinois, uh, and has been for how many decades now? Well, Craig, I'm going to ask you: the apartment that he was assassinated in is it still there? Is there anything that commemorates this? Like what? Uh, y yes, I mean the apartment is no longer there. It has since been torn down and rebuilt. So the structure that's there and that that has the address 2337 West Monroe is not the original building. There is a plaque outside of it that says that that commemorates what, you know, the original building and, and what it signified. Uh, and I think this happened in 2019. Um, and Akua Njiri, uh, formerly Deborah Johnson, and Fred's son fred hampton jr uh were there for the dedication and you know so yeah you could find pictures of it online if you you know if you just google 2337 west west monroe 
in Chicago. Uh, those should come up. But uh, yeah, the apartment's no longer there. Nor, nor is the headquarters building. Now it's a Walmart. <laughs> oh, wow. So Fred Hampton Jr. is now, I mean, he's part of, I guess, another group that calls itself the Black Panther Party. Is Cubs. He... Okay. Cubs. Yes, he, he calls himself the chairman. He calls himself Ch- Chairman Fred Jr. Okay. Um, of course, he, he was born at the end of December. So, you know, obviously Fred was killed before he was born, uh, but he has, he has had his share of, of uh, run-ins with the law just as well um, and did a stint in prison. And yes, he, he, he is the founder and chairman of, I think, I think the Black Panther Cubs. I think that's what it's called. Um, and and uh, again, not, to, not to, say, to say anything to malign him or... Uh, Akua, um, but Fred Hampton Jr. wasn't wasn't a witness to any of this. You know, the fact that he wants to try to carry on his father's legacy is a wonderful thing. Again, so long as it's done the right way. But him having obviously uh, put his stamp of approval on this film, and Akua doing the same thing because they were credited as being cultural experts to the film, which I think basically means they approved of it. Um, I, I, I just, I question why they did. Um, if, if Fred Jr. really wants to try to champion his father's legacy, then, you know, you do things that will elevate him, not elevate you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. The, my whole point of trying to learn as much as I can about Fred and, and uncover more of his speeches and more of his interviews and even his writings, you, you realize he wrote articles as well uh, for the Black Panther newspaper. That, that wasn't talked about. Um, these are still contained in his FBI file. You know, and, and of course, fear of publishing them, you know, me publishing them, because they'll claim that they have <coughs> uh, the rights to them. So, but Fred Jr. could do everything he can to elevate his father's status. And to do that, you get as many records as you can. You, what, set up a museum? I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, do your own research and write your own book. I don't know. Uh, you know, establish, establish that at least high bar for what your father did and what he accomplished and what he should be remembered for. You know, it's great that, that in Maywood, where Fred grew up, there was a there's a memorial pool in his name because that's one of the things that he fought for was a community pool that, that black residents could use because, of course, they were being um, prevented from using other community, you know, white community pools. So but but there has to be more than just a street named after him or just a pool named after him. You know that those were important contributions, but certainly not the only accomplishments that he had, that a very young Fred Hampton accomplished. That's, that's the thing people have still have to remember. I mean, think Adam, what, what were you doing when you were 21? Yeah, I wasn't doing anything quite that, quite that momentous. I can tell you that. Right. We're still trying to figure shit out. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you know, so, so what he was able to do in such a short period of time and the, and the potential that, that he showed uh, every time he met with someone or spoke to someone um, you know, he cared fiercely for his community and for his people. And, 
obviously the, the ultimate sacrifices he, he died for them. So, which he said he was going to do. Um, so, so when you think about that, when you think about the sacrifice of him laying in bed prone, drugged, and these assholes, you know, put five bullets into his body at point blank range, you know, you, you pay homage to that kind of sacrifice the right way. You, you don't dabble in it. You don't, you don't sensationalize it for sensationalize, you know, for sensational sake. Um, you, you do it right. So yeah. I'm hoping that I can do that one day. If yeah. only the FBI will cooperate. <laughs> right. Right. So if anyone knows a lawyer out there who can help me, you know, pry this crap out, but again, that's, it, but anyone can do it. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I was a substitute teacher for eight years. And I always said to my students that if I were your actual teacher, one of your assignments would be to file a FOIA request. I don't care what you're requesting. And yes, it may take longer than your tenure here in high school, but that's not the point. Stick with it follow it through, get the materials, and then donate it to a university library. But release them, get them out, because that's the only way we are going to be able to piece together the history of not only the FBI and the tactics that it used against its own citizens, but also, like I said, this history that cannot be had anywhere else. It must be rescued. It must be, well, to use a term that Fred used, liberated. And the only way to do that is, is, you know, is for us to do it. So, like I said, you had that one blogger who, who got William O'Neill's file. Um, but again, I don't know which file he got. Um, Cause like I said, uh, William O'Neill had a main investigative file and he had his informant file. So I don't know which one he got or if he got both. I, I, I don't know. But then someone else, I don't know why requested Roy Mitchell's, personnel file i didn't even know you could request an fbi agent's personnel file so he has that so okay i I guess i i wouldn't have started with roy mitchell but that's okay The, the, the point is is that these two individuals got stuff out from the fbi vault and i urge everyone out there to do the same thing and it doesn't have to be about the Black Panther Party. It, it could be about any, you know, any individual or group in the 60s. You name one, and chances are they have an FBI file. Liberate these files. Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop. Is there anything else that you wanted to, any other point that you wanted to make, Craig, uh, that we might have not gotten to? Well, like I, I, we, we've covered a lot of ground, and, and I appreciate you allowing me to, to, to you know, just speak uninterrupted. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of material. And I think that, that, that just shows the kind of impact yeah. that Fred had is that again, this very young man who would have been completely justified in being a teenager, smoking, drinking, chasing women, you know, he would have been justified in doing that, but he, right. he found a cause that was important to him that resonated within him. And he dedicated himself to that. And this is a guy who came from a middle-class upbringing, not the impoverished inner city, but the suburbs. And he could still be so affected by the plight of complete strangers that he dedicated his life to doing this. Um, 
it's very dense and 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 there's a lot of things that he did a lot of people he spoke to and um so i appreciate again me being given this platform any other circumstances and i would give that platform to fred because fred is the one who should be listened to uh not just the bits and pieces from the murder of fred hampton but you know um all of his interviews and press conferences and, and speeches. Um, but uh, so we've covered a lot and I appreciate you doing that. I, I, you know, we, we, we could go on for a few more hours if, if you, if you wanted specifics, but but suffice it to say that suffice it to say he, he, he was, um, absolutely one of the most important figures of the 20th century period in American history, not, not, particularly black history or <clears throat> the civil rights movement or <clears throat> it, just history in general. Yeah. And he's not, and he's not in the history books. And that's, that's kind of a shame. Yeah. Hopefully the movie will, you know, some people will go and, and, and do their own research on who he was, you know, hopefully that might be a good silver lining to it. Yeah. I suppose if, if that is the effect for some people, that's great. And then they'll turn around and say, wow, okay, the film didn't quite talk about that. All right. Um, and, yeah. and again, I understand that there are, <laughs> there are limitations to a, to a Hollywood film. You know, you, you can't, I mean, uh, yes, of course, Malcolm X was over three hours long, but yeah. You know, um, I watched that. I watched that again. I watched that again recently. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, so, so I get it. Um, so if it inspires somebody, great. Um, but, but from, from a, you know, and I'm not even arguing from an artistic standpoint. Again, I'll give kudos to the director and to the, to the actors because they know what they're doing and they're good at what they do. I just question, of course, like I said, the, the whole project itself and why focus on William O'Neill and not specifically Fred Hampton or some of the other, other accomplishments that, that, that he had, um, and should be remembered for, um, but if it if it inspires some other people, that yes, absolutely, that is a silver lining. I just think we can do better to inspire people. Craig, where can uh, people find you, like, and see what you're working on? Well, unfortunately, I'm not I, I'm not publicizing anything I'm working on, other than, of course, what I've just told you uh, today. Oh. But um, yeah, I like I said, it's, it's, it's a slow process and, and one that I want to do right. I guess that's if I were eager to just put something out, to put something out and to have my name put on it so that you could refer to it. I guess there's, you know, there's, there's merit in that, but I want to do it right. That's why I've taken my time and I've, and I've gone, you know, I've looked under rocks that haven't been looked under and made connections that otherwise wouldn't be made and so forth and so on. Uh, but if people want to contact me, uh, it's my name, Craig Ciccone at sbcglobal.net. I know I have a very antiquated, uh, email. I'm not on Gmail yet. Sorry. I thought you had a website at one point. Well, I do have a blog, but that blog is a completely different, um, subject. The, the blog is, is actually on my maternal grandmother, who was the first woman in Michigan to, uh, own and publish her own newspaper called the four corners press Southfield news. Um, so I have a blog dedicated to her and the history of that, of that newspaper. Then I also have a blog that basically sells the one contribution I made to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, 
which was a database of eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza. So I've created a map of Dealey Plaza, plotting the witnesses, and then a book that accompanies it that gives a more detailed description of their accounts. And that's being sold on a different blog. But as okay. far as like, like um, the gentleman who does the work on, on Jim Garrison. Yeah, I, I don't have a blog like that. It's a really cool map, and I actually think I'm going to uh, use some of my stimulus money to get one. Nice. <laughs> Fair enough. I would appreciate that. <clears throat> well, thanks a lot for coming on. This has been very illuminating, and uh, I'm thinking about putting together a little little audio collage of some of uh, Fred speaking. That would that would be that would be awesome, because because Fred Fred deserves the platform, not me. I mean, obviously, I've I've done a lot of work, and and but but my sole uh, intent is to is to put Fred front and center, and trying to do that the, the best way I know how. So that would be awesome if you if you. Gave, gave the spotlight to Fred because he more than earned it. Okay. Well, Craig, thank you for joining us. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Always, always to have you on. We're going to continue this discussion on the Patreon side. So, guys, if you're a Patreon, go join us there. And we'll be right back to close out this show on Conspiracy Normal. We don't hate the white people, we hate the oppressor, whether he be white, black, brown, or yellow. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight the solidarity. We're not a racist organization because we understand that the racism is just, is just a byproduct of capitalism. We might not be back, I might be in jail, I might be anywhere, but when I leave, you remember I said, with the last words on my lips, that I am a revolutionary, and you're going to have to keep on saying that. a good uh, interview with Mr. Craig Ciccone. Enjoyed that immensely about uh, the differences between real life and what is actually in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah about Fred Hampton. Yeah. yeah. I want to thank him for coming on and being part of this tonight. Um, hopefully we will be doing more stuff in the studio. So that is definitely the hope since I am back and uh, things seem to be going fairly well yeah it feels great yeah it feels great to be back here uh so guys i think we'll just close out here um there's a patreon segment where we talked a little bit about jim garrison and uh what's that word time and propinquity time and propinquity okay 
you'll find out what that is. If I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but you find that you'll find out what that is in a Patreon episode that we're going to post with uh, Craig Jaconi at the end of the week. A lot of JFK stuff. Yes, and uh, Sergio can tell you where to find that and how to join. At uh, Patreon.com, you can join for $5 a month. That gets you a extra exclusive Patreon episode every week. And at the next level, $10, you get to hang out in our Mystic crew every month. And uh, we got access to guests and really cool presentations. At the next level, the $20 level, you get an exclusive patreon only t-shirt as well as a vip experience at the upcoming strange realities conference yes yes you do and we will be uh doing the pricing for strange realities conference soon but that is for this year is it is online and it will actually be on location here in nashville that is going to be october 15th 16th and 17th so we hope that you can enjoy you can come enjoy it or enjoy it online in the comfort of your home. There will be options for both. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out the YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Uh, there's a couple of episodes on there that are visual that you might want to check out. Our Halloween episode and our Mardi Gras episode that we did last month. So join us next time on Conspiranormal. If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel. Paranormal Podcast.